You're listening to Grace Saves All, the podcast which exists at the spiritual intersection of Christianity and universal salvation. In this podcast, we will be exploring an ancient and modern approach to Christianity, which affirms both that grace saves alone and that grace goes to all. And now, here is David Artman, author of Grace Saves All, The Necessity of Christian Universalism. Hello again, and welcome back to the Grace Saves All podcast. In today's episode, we're going to be listening to part two of my interview with Kevin Pendergrass and Dr. Lee Grant from the Exploring Faith and Pursuing Grace podcast. This is the question and answer session they did with me where they asked me the hard question. So we'll see how I did. Hope you enjoy it. All right, and we are rolling once again. We are back. This is Exploring Faith, Pursuing Grace. I am Lee Grant, joined by Kevin Pendergrass. And this week, we are continuing where we left off in our last episode with Brother David Artman. He is an author. He is a minister, a retired minister now. And we are going to continue our discussion of Christian universalism. Now, last week, in our last episode, uh, Brother David was able to present Christian universalism, explain what it is, and why he believes in it. He gave a lot of good scriptural reasons and a scriptural basis for his perspective and why he believes that that is the best position to take as it relates to God's grace and ultimate saving and salvific power. And this week, what we're going to be doing, Kevin and I will be asking a series of questions. Um, as Kevin left off in our episode last time, there's a lot of people that are probably thinking, well, what about this passage? What about that passage? What about what the Bible says here? And that's what we're looking to dive into in this episode. So, David, thank you so much for agreeing to be yeah, back with us. Yeah, thank you fun. for agreeing to to answer some of these questions. So, yeah, yeah, we're excited to to have you back on, and we cannot wait to drill you, man. Okay, and here we go. Be, no, I'm, I'm just messing <laughs> with you. Uh, so, so I want to go ahead and start out here because I, I thought this was interesting when I was studying. Um, the idea of annihilationism and I'm an annihilationist. I believe in the, the immortality of this or the, that immortality is con- conditional. Um, I believe that it's at, at this point uh, after last week's episode, I'm highly restudying things now. But um, when I was studying that view, I found it interesting that the most popular view among the, some of the earliest Christians was not eternal conscious torment and it was it was the really idea, uh, at least one of the more popular views and understandings, if if not the most, historically speaking, in the among the earliest Christians, is Christian universalism. Is yeah, it was definitely yeah, it was definitely present in the early uh, in the early centuries of the church, and the earliest centuries of the church were they were a Greek speaking. It was a Greek speaking community and world, and. Um, yeah, so there were some, and what's interesting to me is that the early Christian universalists were reading the Greek of the New Testament in their cultural setting. So they were, you know, they were reading the actual Greek New Testament, and they saw from the Greek words that they were reading, they saw a universal restoration. And so, to me, that was that was really interesting. And these were like like uh, Gregory of Nyssa; he was involved in forming the Nicene Creed. And he argued, he actually argued against people, argued against heresies. So you have, <laughs> you have Christian universalists arguing against heresies. So 
and, and, and helping to form the Nicene Creed. And so they didn't, and if you look at the first two creeds, the Apostles' Creeds and the Nicene Creeds, it, you know, it talks about judgment, but it doesn't say that in order to be a Christian, you have to believe in eternal conscious torment or annihilation, or you even have to believe that some will be lost. Basically, they, they said, you know, we believe in judgment, but they left it open as to how people understood that. They were much more interested in that Jesus is the Son of God and that um, you know, his divinity, that he was truly human, truly divine. And, but they didn't, it seems to me, purposefully did not try to exclude Christian universalists from the early Christian community because there were a number of them and they were involved at some of the highest levels. As a matter Why? of fact, uh, Gregory of Nyssa, the Seventh Church Council, uh, uh, much later on in church history, named him Father of the Fathers. So sometimes what I say to people is, listen, you know, this, I can understand one of the objections people might have is, well, you know what, this sounds kind of like New Age kind of theology here, and uh, you're just trying to go with the times, you know, because everything is pluralistic now. And I said, well, no, you know, this was, this was something that early Christians, early Greek-speaking Christians, early Greek-speaking early church fathers had this viewpoint, and it was well, well known in the in the early centuries, uh, in the early centuries of the church. But the thing is, they weren't pluralist about it. They were Christian to the core. They didn't believe that all roads led to God. They believed that Christ was the road that God had come in to lead everybody to Him. So that it was, it was a very. Sometimes people call it patristic universalism because that's a, patristics is a way of talking about early church fathers. Which you know you don't you don't do a lot of talking about early church fathers and Christian church disciples of Christ or churches of Christ or independent Christian churches because we just go right from the Book of Acts, you know, <laughs> so we sort of skip we sort of skip over that three three four hundred years of church history. Well, and and I think that's important to point out to people not to use as a source of authority but to a source of recognition that this is not something that you just decided one day because it's the year twenty twenty that you're just kind of sick and tired of the division and you just want to create a doctrine called universalism and belief that this pie in the sky, (laughs) that everybody's going to go to heaven. And, you know, Bart Ehrman, he's, he is not even a Christian. He's agnostic. And uh, he, he argues in his book that uh, Christian annihilation or excuse me, Christian universalism, uh, it was the most prominent view among the earliest Christians. I know um, a book from uh, Thomas Nelson, all you want to know about hell uh, three yeah. Christian views of God's final solution to the problem of sin. Uh, in that book, it's argued that, uh, once again, Christian universalism was probably the most prominent view. And then even Augustine, while not a Christian universalist himself, he he made mention how there it was a pretty common view. So it's it's important for people listening to this to know that if if we were living— during this time period, if if we go back to the first several hundred years of the church, three, four, five hundred years of the of the church, this would have probably been the majority view, if not a very commonly held view, and it would mm-hmm. not have been like it is today, where most people just brush it off as some sort of postmodernistic liberal yeah. approach to try and uh, and weaken the gospel. Yeah, I think what happened was when the church went into uh, being an imperial religion. Uh, they they not, it not only became an imperial religion, it changed languages. It went from a Greek, a Greek text to a Latin text. And for instance, Augustine, who's the primary theologian of the of the Western, you know, church that has that sort of Latin that Latin background, he couldn't even read Greek. 
Oh, wow. Yeah, and he actively disliked the language. And <laughs> if you look at the Latin, the Latin, the way that some of the Latin interprets the Greek, it's a little, it can be a little harsher in certain ways. And so there's a little less nuance and give that Augustine saw. And when, and Augustine's, he, his theology of eternal, you know, he, there, the, there are the two cities, the, the, the heavenly city, and there's, there's heaven and hell, and each one of them are eternal. Basically, his understanding of that became sort of the backdrop of the whole Western church. And, you know, the Protestant Reformation may have changed lots of things, but it didn't change that, that, that essential backdrop. And so we've just been sort of living in uh, Augustinian theology for what, in one way or another, I think, uh, for so many hundreds of years that we kind of, it was almost like Christian, Christianity forgot its early its early centuries. Now, the Eastern Church, the, the Greek Orthodox Church, still remembers those Eastern Church fathers. And, the, and in the Eastern Church, they define salvation differently. In the Western Church, we define salvation as salvation from sin. In the Eastern Church, they define salvation as union with God. Oh, wow. Hmm. Interesting. That's really it, interesting. It's, it, it's just a whole different, it's a different perspective. Um, but anyway, once I realized, it's like, oh, I've kind of inherited a theological tradition, and that, in a way, helped explain a lot of things. And it also gave me some freedom to go back to the early centuries of Christianity and think about it and look at these Greek words and see how these early church fathers you know, thought about this kind of thing as well. Yeah, well, that, it's, that's super interesting, and it's important for people to, to recognize that when we're studying any subject, but especially a subject that you can point— people back to to say this is something people have believed yeah. since I should since I should I should mention that that in the in the there was a controversy around uh, an, an early church father was quite prominent named uh, uh, Origen mm-hmm. and he he had this idea of a universal uh, of, of universal restoration and there was a church council that was held in 553 the fifth general council of the church and there were some anathemas that were associated with those with that council that had to do with anathematizing anybody basically that didn't believe in eternal torment. So annihilationists anathematized. Uh, you would have been, the, the idea was the emperor Justinian was trying to sort of clean out <laughs> everybody that didn't believe in the eternal torment doctrine that Augustine had. Well, anyway, the, the council was very confusing. There were some things that, that the that the emperor tried to get passed before the council formally met. The pope didn't want to come to the council, and he didn't. Um, let me just, this is, this is kind of fun. Uh, this is a Philip Schaff. He's the editor of the Complete Works of the Church Fathers. Yeah. Right, that it must be admitted that before the opening of the council, which had been delayed by the resistance of the pope, the bishops already assembled at Constantinople had to consider, by order of the emperor, a form of originism, in other words, some doctrines that Origen may not have taught, but others after him did. Uh, so what they had to do was they had to consider um, uh, a form of originism that had practically nothing in common with Origen, but which was held, we know, by one of the originist parties in Palestine. The bishops certainly subscribed to the 15 anathemas proposed by the emperor, but there is no proof that the approbation of the Pope, who was at the time protesting against the convocation of the council, was asked. It is easy to understand how this extra conciliary sentence, 
was mistaken at a later period for a decree of the actual ecumenical council. So in other words, what happened was there was kind of a dust up around some of this, around some of this stuff. And also they condemned the idea that, that, uh, that the devil and his, and the demons would be saved. Uh, and that kind of, Oh, you believe in universalism. Oh, that must mean you believe that the devil's going to be saved. And there was, so it all kind of got, it, it all kind of got wrapped up in sort of this controversy. And what happened was it left sort of a left, a, a lasting impression that universalism had been condemned as heretical. So you sort of go from the early centuries of the faith, then you get to the Western church and you get to a church council, which has, I mean, you can study this council, but it, it was a very confusing council and there's lots of nuance to it, but it left a lasting impression, I'll say, in the Western church that universalism was heretical. Also, it left the impression that uh, annihilationism was heretical too. And so that's why the eternal torment doctrine came through so strongly uh, in the rest at, of the history. At least, of the at least we're both heretics. That, that's well, that's yeah, what matters. I, I, did, I did want to sort of, I, you know, if we're going to be talking heresy, I did want to pull you in the boat with <laughs> Well, so so that kind of leads into it, it well, next all question. Of Protestant, all of Protestantism her, is yeah. heretical. It, well, I mean, because well, it kind of... Yeah, it's the same. It, well, the same medieval Roman Catholic Church that called, you know, that cast doubts on this, also, you know, excommunicated Luther. So we're all heretics. If yeah, we're Protestant, but, at a, if we're if we're saying we're going to go by what medieval church councils, if that's going to be our deciding factor for these things, and you know, when I'm talking with with people like that Church of Christ or Stone Campbell. You know, we don't even know what the church councils are, so it's not a big deal for us. But for some people, if they're in like the Catholic tradition or an Episcopalian or some kind of tradition that looks at those church councils as being in some way definitive, it's it's important for me to be able to tell them that just the simple proposition that God would save all human beings, I don't think was ever formally condemned by a church council. Yeah, and and that leads to kind of a question that I'm curious about you really didn't get to, we didn't get to talk about in the last episode, and that is, what is your view of what happens to the wicked? And I'm using the wicked as a generality just to d distinguish between those who have who have given their life to Christ, who are disciples in the truest sense of Jesus, versus those who, who are not on earth. With with a view of annihilationism, of course, I would say that at the end time, um, when it whenever that happens, that ultimately the the righteous will have eternal life and the wicked will be destroyed, and mm -hmm. that that's it. I, I do believe in a resurrection of both the wicked and the righteous, but I believe that the righteous will inherit eternal life and the wicked will will face a second death. So, what does that look like for a a universalist? What what well, does it look like if someone is wicked? and they die. What, what happens? Is it purgatory? Is it, go ahead. Well, I just want to say the funny, here's a, there's a, like a funny thing that happened. So back in 1996, I did this doctor of ministry paper and it involved the different positions, you know, eternal conscious torment, uh, annihilation and restoration. And I was leaning towards the annihilation point of view there. And so I, but I was having to do, but I, but I did a report. Part of my paper was why do people believe in eternal conscious torment? And there was um, uh, a scholar that was arguing the eternal conscious torment position. And he said, if you look in the 15th chapter of Luke at the, at the lost coin, the lost sheep and the lost son, 
uh, they're all said to be in a state of apolumai, which is the Greek word that can mean lost, but also means it's also translated as destroyed or destruction. Mm -hmm. And so he made the point that something can be destroyed, but still in existence, because the sun was destroyed and even said to be dead, but still in existence. The the sheep was said to be destroyed, but it was it was just lost. It was it was still in existence. The coin was said to be lost or destroyed, but it was just hidden. It, it you know it was it was still in existence. And so sure. the point that he, so the point that he was making was okay. I can eternal conscious torment says that this the, all these things where it looks like stuff is being destroyed. Well, it's actually still there. And when I read that, it was like, huh. <laughs> well, that doesn't go very good with my argument. So that's just an example of like, huh, okay. But you know what? I disregarded it because I was arguing annihilationism at the time. Okay, so anyway, <laughs> then, then the years go by, and I'm starting to think, huh, what, what if this universal restoration is true? And what if the idea is that essentially what's happening is that, is that judgment, God's that eternal judgment, that word eternal is from the Greek word aeon or aeonian, and so, you know when Jesus talks about uh, a, a eternal life is that you would know the Father that that kind of stuff. Well, mm-hmm. that's Aeonian. So you could say Aeonian is 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 what is of God. Uh, so I could translate. Oh, and the and the word punishment. Well, well, let, let me get back. Okay, so what was funny what was funny was I realized it's like I'll be darned. I'm going to go back to that argument. I'm I'm going to become a Christian universalist because of an infernalist argument, because they <laughs> argue that you can continue to be in existence in a state of destruction. Well, if you can continue to be in existence in a state of destruction, maybe there can come to a point where that destruction or whatever that punishment would come to an end. And then I was looking in um, in the Sermon on the Mount, and Jesus talks about uh, uh, hell, that, that the word Gehenna is there behind that word. But that's a word that has to do with destruction, if you really look in the background of it. And so people that argue for destruction will argue that Gehenna is about, is about destruction, and that's a proper understanding of hell. But right in the middle of all that, he says, so it's kind of like, you know, if you need to, if somebody's accusing you, you need to make up with your accuser before you get to the judge. As you get to the judge, he's going to hand you over to the jailer, and he's going to throw you in prison, and you won't get out until you pay the last penny. He didn't say, and you won't get out. He said, you won't get out until you pay the last penny. So Jesus' idea of justice is better to be reconciled now than to face the judge and have to and have to have some consequence. Much better to work things out now because you may have to face some consequence, some kind of destruction, and you will be there until you have paid the last penny. So that was kind of, I was, I've sort of just sort of putting it, putting it together like that. So eternal life is Aeonian life, is the life of God. E- e- uh, eternal uh, torment, you can, that, that's Aeonian Colossus. In the Greek, Colossus has to do with the background in horticulture plants, uh, trimming off the dead, the dead stuff in order that it would grow better. Whereas the Greek word tamoria has to do with retribution. If I'm punishing you, with Tamoria, I'm whipping you till I feel good about it, till my honor is restored. And if I have to punish you for all eternity to restore my honor, that's exactly what I'm going to do. And that was kind of, but the the Greek, the word in the Greek there is Aeonian Colossus, which has to do with, with ultimate, it's punishment towards healing and restoration. 
So it would be like if you if you did something to your child that your child didn't appreciate, but you did it to them to wake them up to what they had done and so that they could finally come back home. So that was kind of a rambling answer. I put a lot in there, so I'll stop. <laughs> so, well, so what exactly kind of explain, uh, and, and I, and I know you did, but, but to give more like specific what your idea is of, of the wicked. So if they, if, if they are ultimately saved, what happens between the time that they, that they are, are dead, that they die and the time that they're renewed or restored what like do you, do you believe there's a punishment that takes place during that time a cleansing that takes place what I just kind exactly? of imagine, you know i just kind of imagine like a really really good parent and it just has a child that is just not getting it and it's like i'm gonna have to do something to get through this kid they do not they do not they are refusing to understand what they're doing i'm gonna have to do something to help them to to get what they have what they have done and and so i'm just thinking that god uh knows how to knows how to create those kinds of situations and what's interesting to me is there's that one passage where jesus talks about that the wicked will be thrown into the blazing furnace which which creates weeping and gnashing of teeth which is weird because fire real fire produces screaming and death <laughs> Yes. <laughs> okay. Yes, so we're dealing with some, with some kind of spiritual fire. The early church fathers called it a wise fire. The fire of God was a wise fire. And then he also talks about, uh, Jesus talks about, they will be thrown into the outer darkness, which produces weeping and gnashing of teeth. And if you're trying to be real literal about it, it's like, wait, if there's all that fire, how can it be dark? Yeah. Um, uh, but the point is that, that God can create a situation, uh, Aeonian, uh, his, his, and he is an eternal kind of life, and he is an eternal kind of correction, too. And the eternal life can be unending. The eternal correction can be unending until it accomplishes its purpose. And so that's, that's how I started putting that together in my mind. And some of the early church fathers were quite... Um, harsh in their understandings of what the punishments of God could be. I mean, they didn't want anybody to think that they were going light on punishment. Um, they thought that, that the, that there could be some offenses and some sins that would requires age that would require ages and ages of purification. So, you know, it, it, they didn't reject hell. What they did was they rejected hell as an eternal punishment that ended <clears throat> that ended with the person never being restored, uh, never being restored to God, because then how could God finally be all in all for the so early church fathers that, that thought that? So they thought it must, it must finally, judgment must finally work towards restoration if God's ultimate goal is to finally be all in all. So he, so, oh, I, I just want to make sure that I'm understanding that last point. So, so they didn't really promote the idea of eternal conscious torment. They believed that hell was a real place of conscious torment, so to speak, but it was to the end of restoration unto God. Yeah. Would that be a fair way of summarizing yeah, the that? One, the ones that believed in the eternal restoration. Yeah. They didn't, they didn't read, they, and, and you know, there's something that's a little disturbing about that. Um, because in the parable of the prodigal son, you know, the son comes back home and it's just kind of enough that he, he came to his senses. And when he gets back home, it's not like the father says, 
I'm so glad you're here. We're gonna have we're gonna have a big party for you, but before time that, out. I need you to come time out. <laughs> I need you to go. I got I need you to go to sit in the cellar for six months. And think yeah. about what you did. And then we're gonna have the party. And then the elder brother would have said yes. <laughs> well, <laughs> one one thing I appreciate about appreciate about you, and this was off air that we were discussing this before that the audience did not get to hear, and that is, you know, there's there's not a bulletproof. Um, position yeah. that there's always going to be verses that someone can appeal to that um, perhaps on the surface seem to contradict or even below the surface perhaps yeah. give a little bit of difficulty but the fact that that you're willing to speak so openly and honestly to say hey this yeah. is this is what some believed and then but you have this verse that seems to just accept and restore the lost son uh, back without any punishment. He kind of came yeah. to that realization. Well, that's, on yeah. own. that's the thing. If you get into the Christian universalist side of the fence, it's not like everybody suddenly agrees. <laughs> yeah. Well, and that, and, and that's, that's the question and you know, that I had for you. And I know this is probably going to be more of a difficult question because in, in everything that you said in the first episode about the goodness of God and, right. and, and, and the love of God. So this, in, in the grace of God, this would be a question to kind of piggyback on what you just said, and especially in connection with the first episode. So if people are listening to this and they haven't listened to the first episode, please go back and listen to that so that you can have context to, uh, to what David is saying in this episode. But if, if I wanted to teach my wife a, a lesson or get her to accept something, I don't know if I would be considered a good and loving husband if I tortured her or punished her. Definitely, definitely not. Definitely not. Yeah. So, so, so the, yeah, yeah. Glad to make that clear. So, so I know that based upon what you said, some would argue that, and and I did a little research just to kind of say, okay, what are some really good questions to ask a Christian first? No, but, uh, but, but what some pushback is that this is really no different than, than what most people believe, you're simply just moving it from this age. Uh, and when I say you, I'm talking about Christian universalists in general. It's just a shift from this age to the next age. So in other words, well, I believe we're saved by grace only, and there's nothing we can do. But if you don't accept God's grace here on earth, you're going to be uh, punished or disciplined or put in a, a, a place of misery until you eventually come to accept Jesus and say, okay, now I realize that now God can give me grace without punishment. So, you know, obviously if, 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 you know, you were to beat me, torture me, abuse me long enough, heck, I'm going to say whatever you want me to believe, (laughs) believe it, you know? So I, I guess what I'm asking here is that how would you argue that this is any different when dealing with grace and the goodness of God? You know, if we're saved by grace alone, then would it not be the case whether we accept it here on earth or not? We're, we're saved nonetheless. But if 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 we are, if we are saved by grace alone, but then again in the age to come, those who didn't accept that while here on earth are tortured or at least disciplined or punished in some sort of form or fashion until yeah. they realize it, then at that point, could that not simply be playing semantics almost? And in essence, well, I, okay, good question. I would say that we're talking about we're talking about grace, saved by grace alone. That means I'm included by grace in, in God's, um, God, in, in God's creation in God's creation ultimately moves towards restoration. And part of the way that God's creation moves towards restoration is through correction. And so, uh, I know you use the example of, uh, of the husband and the wife. And, uh, I, it was interesting that, that, that you were going to correct her, um, 
most of the time, Bethany corrects Kevin, if we're going to be honest here. I may, I may, I may end up getting tortured until I'm corrected right, after right. that comment. Right, right. I, I just wanted to, since you're, since you're throwing hard questions at me, I thought, you, thought I'd throw you under the bus. Thanks a lot, David. <laughs> but anyway, the, 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 the image that's used in uh, is the image of father, father, children, and the idea that a loving, a loving father actually disciplines children. So that actually discipline is a expression of love. Failure to discipline is an expression not of love. So a loving, a loving parent disciplines their children. Often the child do not appreciate the discipline at the time, but it's, it's so that the child can come to, um, can, uh, uh, can come to its senses. Uh, suppose you had a child that had, that had, um, and, and I have a friend who, who had this, uh, had this happen. Um, their child got really bad on drugs and, and called them and wanted to uh, come home. And so he went to get the child. When they got the child home, the child became convinced that he had kidnapped her and was trying to run, was trying to run away, but she was not in her right mind. And so my friend tried to stop her child from running away. And the child started hurting herself and pulling you know, her hair out and yelling and screaming. He, he eventually called the police and had her put in prison for her own safety until she could come to her senses. Um, that's an expression of love. You wouldn't say your child, oh, honey, I respect your freedom and I love you so much. Just go run out that door. You know, at a certain point, the, the parent does allow enough freedom for the child to learn and to make mistakes. But then at a certain point, the, the parent intervenes if once the situation is getting so far out of control. So what I would say is that, is that God, God intervenes in the same way and, and that the correction of God, that, that weeping and gnashing of teeth, that's the, that's the misery of coming to see clearly what you've done. I, one of the reasons I like Dickens' Christmas Carol is the character of Scrooge. You know, you could see that as judgment scenes that mm-hmm. are happening, and he is finally reduced to his knees and to tears. It's a very difficult experience, unpleasant, very difficult experience. He has to look and see what he has become. He has to really get it, who he, who he had become. It was a horrible experience for him. Brought him to his knees crying. Can it be different? Um, and so uh, people who have thought this have thought that this is, what, this is what the weeping and gnashing of teeth, this is what the outer darkness, this is where the full force, uh, where you can't, you know, well, I think I can sense, you know, we talk, we're talking about being men. Men are really good at rationalizing our behavior. Yes. But what if God has to break through that, but is breaking through it not to condemn us, but to set us free? Yeah. Well, it might seem to us that while he's breaking through, that he's trying to kill us. But what he's trying to do really is to, is to restore us. And, and since I, you know, my, one of my early points is that, that we have this parental relationship with God. And so I believe that, even though we do sin and fall away, that we still are God's children and we still have that inner longing to be with God. And I know about this. You guys both grew up in the church. I grew up outside of the church. And so I remember that moment when I started to believe that God was my true, truest father and what that made me feel like and that I was, I was his child and that he loved me and he highly valued me and that I that I had something of his essence in me and that, the, and that, and that, and that he was going to work this into something beautiful and that, that he, I am his child, you know? So 
so I see that, that, in other words, God is intent on bringing his children to perfection. And so he does in his grace so that judgment then is part of grace. And I really like that idea. And whenever you really think about it, it's really not that much of a stretch to make the leap in looking at judgment as an extension of God's grace, because we look at it as an extension of God's grace in the plane in which we live now in this physical existence. You know, whenever we come through a hard time or, you know, something that really brings us to our knees, like Scrooge, like you mentioned, you know, earlier in Dickens, whenever we do that, we often look back and say, man, God really had a lesson to teach me in that moment. You know, so often that's the kind of language that we use and that's the perception that we have. And it's really not that much of a stretch to, to, excuse me, to see that taking place even on the other side of the plane. I mean, I don't know if I'm, if I'm there yet, but I can see the rationale behind that. And I can see that. And, you know, and so that's where, you know, there was that passage that I kind of started off with from Lamentations for no one is cast off by the Lord forever, though he brings grief. He will show compassion. So great is his unfailing love, for he does not willingly bring affliction or grief to anyone. I love that. I think that might be my new favorite passage. I like it. Well, I I end up kind of, that's kind of a keystone passage for me. And and that was, and this was, that this was the Hebrew people, the Jewish people, what they believed about God at their low point, because they had just been conquered by the Babylonians. They were feeling judged and evicted. And they were probably wondering, okay, if God has allowed the Babylonians to conquer Jerusalem and to over, you know, to knock the walls down and to take us away, maybe God is just done with. Maybe we failed, and maybe God is done with us. Maybe He has rejected us forever. And so this is Jeremiah. And if you read Lamentations, you think, why would I want to read Lamentations? I, don't, I want to be in a good mood. But <laughs> yeah. So the first part of Lamentations is all about this confession and wailing that we were guilty, we did wrong, and all this kind of thing. And then you get to the very middle of Lamentations, and you get this, like this ray of sunshine, you know, but no, no, for no one. And this is Jeremiah. And Jesus' ministry is an interesting sort of reprise, in a way, about Jeremiah. A lot of things that Jeremiah talked about, Jesus ends up talking about. And I'm, I would argue that Jesus knew these passages, knew this that the Old Testament, we think it's the Old Testament, but for Jesus, it was his Bible. Yeah. I think that he, I think that he would have known that passage. And when he says that no one is cast off by the, he brings grief, but he will show compassion. I see that when Jesus is talking about, you may be, you may be thrown in prison and you will not get out until you have paid the last penny. There's another parable where the, the, the unforgiving servant ends up uh, he be, he ends up being handed over to the jailers who torture him until he pays all that he yeah. owes. And yeah. talk about an uncomfortable image. Yeah, uh, that's another one. Well, that doesn't really fit, but <laughs> but it does. It you know it's this idea of grief, or that in other words that God will grieve you as much as is necessary. And and that's sort of the way I think of it too is is that suppose, you know, you're, quote, in heaven, and it's like, oh, look who just came to heaven. I didn't ever, you know, it's been a long time, and he came in, and you could tell just in the look in his eyes that he he understands now. Yeah. 
Well, one of the one of the arguments that you make in your book, and I'm, I've I've kind of hit you with some some hard questions here, or some probably a little more difficult, complicated ones. I know, but well, I'm gonna, no, I had I had to answer, I had to come to all of these myself too. So I'm, I'm going to yeah. give you more of a of a softball question because I think that it you did a really good job, and I'm I'm saying softball tongue in cheek because this was something that. It, it is something I want you to discuss, so I'm just kind of I'm kind of teeing it up for you because I want you to go okay. there. But with the whole idea of let's let's go back to this idea of restoration and destruction because really that's where the whole argument lies, right? That, that what you're right. saying is that the there, there's there's purpose in the punishment, there's purpose in the discipline because that's what punishment ultimately is is discipline, and it's not just God's ticked off and He wants to torture everybody forever and ever and ever and ever, but there's a reason why he is disciplining his creation. It's to to bring them to a point of of reconciliation, of realization, if you will, so okay. that they can discover that faith for themselves. That said, are, are there any, and I know there are, so once again, I'm teeing this up for you. So are there any passages that you can point to to say, this is a, a point in time in which something was was considered destroyed and and brought back. I know you you alluded to Luke 15 there, and of course, being an annihilationist myself, I'm you know of course familiar with those passages. But there are times when that word can mean something that is not just lost or ruined, but it is literally at a point in time no more. You know, you have the the uh, idea of uh, Herod wanting to kill or destroy baby Jesus. He didn't want to just um, you know right. ruin it, ruin him a little bit. He actually wanted to kill him, and even though he's God, he can't be destroyed. Herod didn't know that. So Herod's intent was to, to actually kill him. And we see that in Matthew 2, 13. And we see Jesus talking about food that is destroyed or food that perishes, yeah. silver and no. gold that perishes. Yeah, so, yeah, yeah, yeah. You can have the destruction of, yeah, sure, you can yeah, destroy so, the body. So context, you know, obviously plays a part in that. But you pointed out, even with that being said, even when something contextually is destroyed, that it later on, and you, uh, Sodom is really the one I want you to hit on. Oh yeah, that's a funny one. Well, I, I, shouldn't, I shouldn't say that's funny. Yeah, but that but is. It's a curious one. It's like I when I first, yeah, when yeah, I first read that when I first read that in Ezekiel, it was like, wait a second, did Ezekiel just say that Sodom was going to be restored? Yeah, yeah. Like, what is there to restore? It is gone. Yeah, it is over. It is finished. It is a smoking ruin. There is nothing left. How can you restore something where nothing is left? Yeah, that was powerful. So, so just kind of give a little commentary on that, because that that's a clear example when something is not just rendered useless, like some of these other uh, times that this word is used. But in that case, this this is something that's that's truly destroyed. It's it's something that that is no that no longer there. And we see that from Second Peter and Jude, where they make reference to that. But yet we see that there is still going to be a future restoration. So if you will, just uh, we talked about it a little bit, but give a little more commentary so people understand exactly what we're talking about. Well, yeah. So you have in Genesis, I think, chapter 19, you have the uh, story of the destruction of Sodom. And it's this it's this horribly it's this horribly uh, wicked. It's, it's the most wicked place of all. And then later on in, in Ezekiel, the prophet Ezekiel is shaming Jerusalem. And, and is saying, you know what? You make Sodom look good. Like, I mean, he's bringing it <laughs> to Jerusalem and saying, you guys are horrible. But then after he shames them, he says, but God will restore uh, Samaria and God will restore Sodom and God will restore you, Jerusalem, as well. And so that's just, it, once you get into the uh, whole idea of, of um, 
that rest that 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 the rest that destruction that there is restoration on the other side of destruction what happens is you start seeing passages that talk about that this is an example of once you start looking to see something in the bible you start finding it when you didn't see it before yeah so anyway that's that's the that's the whole ezekiel that's the whole ezekiel what? there's an, there's yeah. another just real quickly there's another really good one about destruction and this has to do with uh, translation. I, I use the NIV in my book because I wanted to show that I think that I can make a good case from this from the NIV. I didn't want to use a quote liberal Bible. <laughs> I, used, <laughs> I used the NIV, and uh, so Second hey, Thessalonians that's liberal where we came from, man. <laughs> <laughs> okay, okay. Oh yeah, okay, good. Okay, so Second Thessalonians one nine in the NIV says they will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord, and from the glory of his might. Okay, now that, when I was, when I was, I'll say, when I was rocking annihilationism, that's pretty good text for me. Yeah, that's your go-to verse. <laughs> yeah, I got you. <laughs> well, um, it turns out that uh, if you look at that, there's a Greek word there, apo, which is like our English word from. And so, depending on context, you can translate that differently. So there's a there's a version of the uh, translation that's from the 1800s called Young's Literal Translation. Have you ever heard of that? Yes. Yeah. It's an interesting translation. It kind of sounds real King James sort of, but he did, he tried to make it really literal and he tried to capture a lot of sort of the, the, the there's a kind of a, well, here's the way he put it. He said that, that the guilty shall suffer justice, destruction, age during from the face of the Lord and from the glory of his strength. In other words, the idea is that they weren't being shut out from the Lord forever by destruction, is that the destruction was coming towards them from the face of the Lord. So that's an example of a kind of a translation decision. The NIV translated the Greek word apo one way, which that means you're being destroyed and shut out from, away from the Lord forever. Uh, Young in his translation translate that. So this is a this is a destruction coming from the face of the Lord to you. Kind of see what I'm getting at there, Kevin. You there? I feel like somebody we dropped out. Was somebody dropped out? Yeah, can, I'll, I'll can you hear me. Yeah, there I, you are. I can hear you now. Sorry, sorry about that. Let me. All right, am I good now? Yeah, yes. you're good. Okay, cool. Okay, so when I left, uh, basically when I left off, I was talking about that there can be a destruction which comes uh, from the face of the Lord towards towards the wicked. So I think that that the idea is, uh, this whole idea, to me, it was the idea of thinking about destruction as a way that God doesn't put something out of existence, but a way that the God, God reduces it to the point that it needs to be reduced so that it can be restored. Yeah, it's interesting. So I, I want to shift gears if we can just a little bit, because we right. talked quite a bit about the, we've had some questions about destruction and restoration and how all that works. And I have a question that's really more of a practical question. If in the end, everything will be restored. If in the end, salvation is extended to all through the grace of God, then why does it matter that I live a holy sanctified life while on earth. 
if in the end I'm going to make it there anyway, why not just eat and drink for tomorrow we die? You know, if I can, you know, kind of take the apostle Paul out of context a little bit, you know, why not go and carouse around? Why not sleep around on my wife? Why not go and do all of these other things? And I might feel a compunction to do. And let me just be clear. I don't feel a compunction to do anything. (laughs) Well, that must be, you're, you're just pure. That's great. <laughs> I am far from that. But but the question is is, you know, why not just engage in all of those fleeting pleasures of sin for a season while here yeah. on earth if in the end I'm going to be saved anyway? Why does well, it even matter if I live a sanctified life? So I have a I'm in uh, Lions, you know, Lions Club and uh here in Harrison and well we'll eventually start meeting again, I hope. Um but anyway, one of my friends in one of my friends in Lions Club is an atheist. And he says, you know, the thing is, he says, you know what? I think I'm more moral than Christians are because I'm here and I'm, you know, I, I do good things and I serve my fellow man and I'm not getting any reward for him. The only reward I'm getting is because I know it's the right thing to do and it makes me feel good. But you know what? All, all these Christians, you know what? I think the only reason they're doing all this stuff, that they're going to church and trying to do good things is they're afraid of going to hell. If you took the hell thing out of it, I don't think they do any of it. I yeah. think they, I don't think they'd go to church. I think they'd, I think they'd live wild and crazy. I don't think they want to do any of this. I think they just, I don't think they want to do it. I think they're just in there because they have to do it or they're going to go to hell. And that's why they're so angry. I thought, oh, <laughs> yeah, that's an interesting, well, that, that's an interesting way to put it. I always well, want to uh, go ahead. No, I was going to say in a previous uh, what's the word I'm looking for? In a previous time in my life, I, I was an atheist for a little while. I was angry at God, which it's ironic that you don't believe in God, yet you're going to be angry at a deity you don't believe in. Um, but there was a lot that happened in my life. I was angry at God for a period of time, and I would make that same argument that your friend in the Lions Club would make. Yeah, yeah. I think, it's, I think there's something to it. Also, I think what I noticed is that fear-based religion uh, breeds fear-based spirituality. Yes, absolutely. Okay. Okay, so if you're teaching people to be afraid, then their spirituality is going to go out of fear. I remember one time I went to a church camp, and it was it's kind of a long story. It was a bunch of different churches were there and different groups, and there was uh, this other big church that invited our group to come over with them. And uh, so the 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 uh, the the um, they had an evangelist, and the evangelist stood up in front of the, all these kids, and he said, I want you to know I got radically saved when I was in high school. I've never gotten over it. And if you're not reading your Bible every day, if you're not praying the Lord every day, if you're not witnessing your friends every day, then you're going to hell just as fast as any heathen out there. And don't you Amen. think that God won't put you in hell together? And Woo! don't you think that God won't put you in hell either? And there was like about 13 or 14 adults that were in the back of the room, and they just erupted. Amen. Preach it to them. Come on now. Don't, you know. And then. And he was, that was just, that was like his warm-up pitch. I've been listening to one of Lee's old sermons. <laughs> you, that, you were going to hell. There's hardly any way, you know, and he just laid into these kids, laid into these kids, laid into them. Okay, so then, and like my kids, they were like looking at me like their eyes were like wide open, like we've never heard anything like this before. And so anyway, so they were riveted. It was like we were in like a horror movie or something. Well, and this guy just went on, and then they had a worship service. So they started playing contemporary praise and worship music. And like our kids were like, they were used to kind of clapping a little bit or maybe raising their hands a little bit. You know, these other kids, 
they were in one of two positions. They were either completely and totally stretched to the to the stretched out as as far as they could, reaching up to God, praising them with everything that they got, because anything less than hundred percent praise and worship wasn't worthy. Or they were on their knees. They were on. They were flat on the ground, spread out, crying. Yeah, and oh, and yeah. our kids and our kids were looking at that, and they were just like, "What is going on?" And it's and we talked about it afterwards. Is that they are so afraid they are going to hell? There is just the narrowest possibility that they're going to be able to live a life that is that is it is holy and acceptable to the Lord. And so they were either crying for their uh that they were not holy enough in worship or they were giving it a hundred a hundred percent because that's all that God sees as worship. Yeah. Well and even so though, why even if they're gonna make it anyway, why be scared? If they're gonna make it anyway, why worship that fervently? You know, why, why even bother with any of that? Why even bother going to church camp if, if that's the case? Well, and so, and so basically what, what I would, what I would say to people is that what if we did, what if we did spirituality that was a completely positive spirituality? Jesus came that we would have not only life, but fullness of life. And, yeah. and that Jesus, and that Jesus seemed to think that the that the life of God, the kingdom of God, his good news that he announced is that it is now present and available. And he was saying, "Let me show you how powerful and how good this is." And he invited people to to repent, or which in Greek metanoia, uh, rethink, think better of it, and to enter into the life that it truly is life. And you don't have to wait; you can enter in this into this life right now. You can overcome the world right now. And in my own, in my own life coming out of, I went through, I didn't grow up in church and I didn't think I believed in God. And I went through a time of real despair. And when I came to a point where I could really believe that maybe there was, I could have, I started to believe that maybe God really did love me and that there was this good way of living in the world and that there was a way that I could live in the world and I could thrive no matter what, if I was sick, if I was happy, if I was, there was always that God was always going to be with me and I could thrive all the way through this life and then just keep on going after this life. And I didn't even have to be afraid of dying. I mean, that was fullness of life. That was why I wanted to follow Jesus. And that's why I invited other people to do the same. The Christian Church Disciples of Christ, the, the, the Disciples of Christ is really important in our name. If you want to, if you want to just take our, our church down to one word, it would be disciples. And that's the idea is that we are, what are we doing? We are here and we are following Jesus and his way of life. We are learning from him. What does he know how to do? He knows how to live life in God's kingdom. He's showing us the way. Let's follow him into the life that truly is life. And so that's what I would teach people and invite people to receive. And that's such a powerful answer. And to me, that stands in stark contrast. It, it seems to contrast so much with that fear-based motivation that you that you talked about just a little bit earlier, and that Kevin and I have discussed at length on this podcast. You know, if you're doing something out of fear of condemnation, it's far different than doing something out of love for someone. Well, that like, goes back to First John four. Yeah, there's there's no fear in love. That's what First John yeah. fourteen says. But perfect love drives love out. out of fear. Yes, and yeah. and it says because fear has to do with punishment. Unfortunately, most people when they think of Christianity, they think of of punishment. That's that's the focus is you do this or else you do this or or this is going to happen, and it's more of a coercion 
into following Jesus than it is uh, a willful relational desire. It's more of, well, I don't want to go to hell. And if that's the case, it seems like most people have their faith placed in hell instead of their faith placed in in Jesus. Let me do, let me do one more, let me do one more judgment passage uh, that kind of, I think that, 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 I think that, and there's one way that you can see it, and it's really scary. And then there's another way you can see it to where it's really motivational. So Matthew seven thirteen to fourteen, enter through the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the road is easy that leads to destruction, and there are many who take it. For the gate is narrow and the road is hard that leads to life, and there are few who find it. Okay, so I look at that and it's like, holy, look at that. <laughs> That's, yeah, that's holy tough. smokes! That, what do you do with that? Smokes, yeah, that, 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 it's tough. It's a, it's a. Uh, uh, if I want to find life, it's a, it's a hard road, and there are few who find it. Wow, there must not be very many that make it, uh, and it's hard. And there's all these people that are going, and they are going on this road, and they're going to destruction, uh, which you know you could say is non-existence or. Uh, the eternal conscious torment people would be a state of enduring existence, but in a state of destruction or torment. So this again, uh, but if you go back to the original Greek text, if you, it turns out that there's lots of verbs that are in the, uh, in the Greek that are in an active tense, and it makes for sort of an awkward English translation. But if you look up the, the verbs in this text, you'll find they're, they're in an active, in an active tense. And if you, if you do it that way, you could translate it to enter through the narrow gate for the gate is wide and the road is easy, which is leading away into destruction. And there are many who are entering through it for the gate is narrow. and The road is hard. That is leading the way into life and fewer those who are finding it. So now this is so Jesus. So Jesus is now observing this, that the way that leads to destruction seems to be the easy path. And there are many that go in that path of destruction, but there is a way that leads to life, but it's narrow and hard. And there are few that are taking it. So it's an observation about what's happening rather than a declaration that uh, there are some that will, you know, that will never, uh, that will never be restored. And this same word is, uh, is the, in destruction here is this apolumi, epilumi uh, concept again. So anyway, that was, that's just another, that also affected the way that I saw John uh, 3.16, you know, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever should believe. Uh, should not perish, right? That's a good annihilation one. Should not perish, but have eternal life. But if you look up, if you just do a search on, if you ever done a search on John three sixteen in the present tense, it, it's an. Int- you guys still there? Yes, yes, we're here. Yeah, okay, okay. And okay John three sixteen in the present tense. If you do a search on that, you'll find out that the words there are the, the Greek words are in the present tense. So it comes out. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son, that whoever is believing in him is receiving eternal life, and whoever is not is perishing. So what's happening is it's an ongoing, through ongoing trust and confidence, you are receiving one. You are receiving that aeonian, that eternal life of God right now. But there are ones that are not living in that life, and so they are perishing. They 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 are entering into destruction. That really turns everything on its head. That's yeah, I heard I heard the story. I heard a story about a Baptist preacher who got fired over that text because he he researched and he said, "Wait a second, this isn't." I know we say you know we believe so that we are saved, but this is saying we are believing and we are being saved. We are believing and we're being delivered. 
It's an ongoing, yeah. it's a relational thing. It's not just, oh, I said the words one time and so now I'm saved. It's I'm a believing one and therefore I'm a receiving one and I'm living in the ongoing, this ongoing life. And he thought this was a great revelation. And they said, well, you're fired because that's not what we believe. Wow, man. Wow, man. That's a terrible oh, Well, that's lose. a story. I mean, it's a, I, yeah. I think I read that a story years ago about that. But in other words, uh, seeing the ongoing present tense of some of the some of the greek words that that helps me to understand why some of these early greek speaking church fathers saw more possibilities it's more of a process these, of uh of of purging almost it's it's yeah. get the and, and, right and so where we read an english word torment they might read a greek word that meant to them correction mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. you know and where we read the word eternal they might read the word enduring that might mean more enduring to them. Uh, in other words, you know, uh, so I just think that it, that when I started looking and seeing all of this, it made me understand not just how I could think it, but how these early church fathers that spoke Greek saw these possibilities in this word. So they weren't ignoring the text. As a matter of fact, they knew the text in the original Greek, and so they saw these possibilities. And that's why most of them were Christian universalists. I mean, it's not a stretch to to arrive at that conclusion or to see that that's the case. Yeah, you know, that's an argument about how many of them were. There were different teaching centers, and they said, you know, some of them, like four of them, I think, were universalists. One of them was a annihilation, and the other one was the eternal torment. And that was the teaching center in Rome, and that was the one that we sort of inherited in the Western church tradition. I don't know how you could... Uh, how you could measure it, but there were certainly early church, even early church fathers that what's interesting is it's early church fathers that weren't universalists, which, which just observed there were a lot of them. Yeah. Well, we have time for one more question before we bring our, our little Q and a here to a close. So All right. I have one more that I want to ask you and it's based on Matthew 25 okay. in Matthew 25 and verse 46 it's true that the word translated everlasting can actually be a set period of time as opposed to a time without end. Yet, how would you respond to someone who says that it's inconsistent to argue that eternal life with God should be defined as time without end, but eternal life and punishment is only a set period of time? Like, yeah, how I would can, you that one? Well, I said the word that we're dealing with an adjective and an adjective, you know, how it defines something. So I could say, uh, uh, there's a tall basketball player or there's a tall building. It, 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 uh, God's Aeonian, uh, Aeonian, uh, life is the life is God's life. It lasts as long as it, it lasts. A Aeonian, uh, Colossus or Aeonian correction would be God's correction, which lasts okay. as long as it, as it lasts. How long am I going to be in timeout? Well, <laughs> for as long as it lasts, <laughs> for as long and, and in a way it's eternal in a sense, it's ongoing. It's without end until it accomplishes its purpose. So it's Which more is of a why word then that that would be defined through the through what it's modifying. Yeah, and so I don't want anything to do with Aeonian Colossus. I mean, yeah. it, it would, to me that's a grueling, rigorous experience. On the other hand, if I left this life with an attachment to some form of evil that I had not conquered, I would I would want the Aeonian Colossus of God. I would want. I would want the the correction of God, because the judgment of God is only. Uh, there's a Christian uh, uh, George MacDonald. I don't know if you've ever heard of him, but he was a Scottish minister. C.S. Lewis really looked up to him. 
Um, but George McDonald said that if we understood the judgment of God, we would run to it because it's all grace. Anything that God gives us is good. It would be like if you went to your parent and you said, I can't, I'm having trouble with this. I need to tell you I'm having a problem with something. I need you to help me to get it stopped. So th- theoretically, would you say that the life w- with God in heaven, what it, whatever that it, that is and looks like, m- may not be time without end? No, no. I would say that it, it that 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 the life of God and the punishment of God can both accomplish, both last as long as they last, and so that the life of God can go on forever. And the punishment of God can go on as long as it goes on, but it can come to an end. I think that the that the that the correction of God can come to an end, but the life of God can continue on. But they can both be aeonian. And this is why the early Greek-speaking church fathers read those passages and didn't weren't upset about it. It was oh, aeonian, aeonian, aeonian correction, aeonian life. It's just the life of God or the correction of God. And uh, William Barclay, I don't know if you're familiar with him. He wrote uh, the New Testament. Are you guys familiar with him? Yeah, I school. Yeah, he was a re- he's a real well known uh, commentator. Wrote wrote mil- a, a commentary series on the Bible that sold millions of copies. He became he he called himself a Christian universalist toward the end of his life, a convinced Christian universalist. And he said it was one of the reasons because in this this Matthew 25 passage could be could be interpreted enduring correction uh, rather than uh, eternal torment. And so that, so that's, I think that's, that's sort of basically how I would answer that question. Well, if, if, if people have listened to the first episode in this one and they're not wanting to do more study, then uh, it's not because you did not do your job. <laughs> I'll tell you that you have really, I thought, I think you've done a great job at, at giving a lot of information and, and, Lee and I both told you this, that we know that within just a couple episodes, you're not able to cover everything you would like to right. cover or need to cover to give this any kind of uh, exhaustive look. But you've done a great job at covering a lot of the highlights and fielding some of our questions and just letting folks know that there is biblical reasons that you can be a Christian universalist. And so if there's someone out there who is not a Christian because they feel like believing in a God who would either A, torture someone forever and ever and ever, or B, destroy someone simply because of, um, you know, the, 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 for lack of better words, a straight reading of the text or. Uh, yeah. Just, well, the apparent, the apparent reading of the text in most English translations would lead people to that conclusion. Yeah. And, and so this is giving them an alternative to research, to look into that you yeah. don't, there are Christians out there who do believe everyone's going to be saved. And I do have, this is just a quick question. You don't have to give much commentary. I'm actually, this is just curious, curiosity. Do you believe Satan and and the, his angels, the, the demons will be saved too? Pass. (laughs) (laughs) You know, (laughs) Um, actually what I did, what I did in my book was that I, I, I restrained the conversation to the discussion about humans about the salvation of human beings. Yeah, that's a different topic. And, yeah, yeah, and and this other this is this is this is one of you know when I said you know, Christian universalists argue about stuff, this is this is something that they that they argue about. And then you have to get into uh I mean if you say the argument for it would be uh God uh creates every God is good and so that everything God creates has has some goodness 
and 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 that it would be strange that God would create a being that He knew He would eventually just throw away. Um, so uh, that's the argument. Uh, that's the argument for it. The argument against that. If if I'm yeah, the, the argument against it, the argument against it is you know we're talking about things that happened before people came around and what was going on in heavenly councils and, and all those types of things. So, so the, the, uh, that maybe perhaps the disobedience of, of the angelic beings is of a different sort that, that cannot, that humans could, can accomplish that. Uh, I don't know. Uh, but I, so I sort of just wanted to, I, I just wanted to, to, uh, to steer clear. Let me just tell you one was one real quick story. There was a guy that, uh, came to the church and we had a recovery group and he came for, he came for like, uh, uh six months. And he didn't say anything, but when he first started coming, I said, I just want you to know that at this church that, um, uh, you can, uh, search for the God of your understanding, just like you do in recovery. But here we're seeking him through Jesus and you're free to understand who this God is. I said, just so you know, I, I really believe that the God that I see through Jesus is my perfect parent who would never give up on me. And who would never let me, who would never let go of me, and who would be with me no matter how low things got, and was always with me until I was well and healed. Now that's how I said. Now that's how I see it. Not everybody reads the Bible that way, but just so you get a kind of an understanding of things. And he just looked at me. He didn't say anything. Then he came to the class for six months. He didn't say anything. Then after six months, he started talking. And he said, "You know, when you talked about." that God you described that would be with you even in the darkest of times, it would never leave you and it would never forsake you. He said, I lost everything in alcoholism. I lost my family, lost my job. I was down at the very bottom all by myself. And I didn't even think of my spirit of myself as a spiritual person. But when I got down there, I figured out I, what happened was I realized I was talking to somebody. And when I got right down at the very bottom, you're the first person that's ever described to me the person I was talking to down there. Hmm. Wow. And you know, is that, is that a confirmation? Does that mean that Christian universalism is true? But it was just kind of interesting to me that when I, when I just opened that possibility to somebody, they recognized it. Like I know that person. I didn't know that that person was here. Yeah. I, and they didn't know that. And that was why he was one of the reasons he was afraid to come to church, because he didn't know that the person, that the God of his understanding, who would never leave him and would never forsake him no matter what. He didn't know if that was acceptable in church. Wow. Man, it's, I don't really even know what to say. I'm just kind of dumbstruck. <laughs> well, that was, a, you know, that was like a big moment for me, too. It was like, huh, there's, there's something. Well, let me put it this way. I don't know if it's, you know, I can't say it's right. I don't know. I can't, perfect. I can't, but I just had along the way that I've been living this way, I've had enough confirmation of it to think that there's something, there, it, there's good things that are happening. I could see good spiritual goods. It was bearing good fruit, making people come alive spiritually, making them more loving and forgiving, you know, people letting go of resentments, addictions, all this kind of stuff was happening. So, yeah. Well, and the results a lot of times in situations like that will speak for themselves. It's bearing good fruit. That's all, you know. Absolutely. Bearing fruit. Uh, if, if you will, go ahead and quote or read uh, Limitations one more time just to, just to end. Uh, oh, since that's really yeah. your, your basis for Yes, my favorite text. Uh, so uh, Lamentations 3, verses 31 to 33. Verse 31, for no one is cast off by the Lord forever 
verse 32, though he brings grief, he will show compassion. So great is his unfailing love. Verse 33, for he does not willingly bring affliction or grief to anyone. I love it. That's so powerful. And it's, it's in the Bible. It's in the Bible. It's in the Bible. It's right there. <laughs> We're going to have to have you back on. I'm sure there's going to be a lot of, of interest in this topic. And so I hope. Oh, I would love to. Like, you know, this is all I'm doing right now is I'm working. I have my own podcast, uh, uh, Grace Saves All uh, podcast. And so I'm going, I'm actually working through all of the things in my book in the podcast. So you don't have to buy the book. I'm trying to get all the content out there for free. Now you tell well, but if you want to get the book, the thing is, is that, you know, because sometimes people will say, well, can you give me the notes on that? Well, if you want to know, like, all the scripture references and all the notes and the footnotes and the quotes and more stuff in background, uh, that's kind of what the book is for. But in the in the podcast, I'm just kind of trying to work through these questions for people that, you know, are interested. Yeah. Well, well we thank you so much for being on, and that is the Grace Saves All podcast. David, is there any other place that people can find you on the Internet? Uh, davidartman.net and you can the podcast i have a podcast page on my uh, on my website so you can just go to the website davidartman.net and hit the podcast page and it's got all the podcasts there too fantastic we'll link to that the title of brother david's book is grace saves all the necessity of christian universalism you can pick that up on amazon we have a link to it in the show notes David, thank you so much for coming well, thank, on our podcast. Yeah, really, thank you for giving thank you for giving me the time and and the opportunity just to share this. And I hope it I hope it helps somebody. It's fantastic. It's helped me, and you've got me really thinking hard about this universalist perspective. It's definitely something I'll be studying more on because it's it's intriguing to me. It really is intriguing for some of the explanatory power that it has. And like we said earlier. You know, there's no such thing as any bulletproof theology. There's always going to be moral issues. There's going to be conundrums. There's going to be different weaknesses that different perspectives have. But I really like the strengths that this position has. I'm not there yet, but it's definitely something I want to examine more closely. Yeah, so, and to me, just sort of having it as a uh, as as something that's that's there to you know just to just to think about. You don't have to you know run and fully embrace it, but just to know that it's that it's there. And it's sort of sometimes, you know, you're like, you're looking at a passage, it gives you a different way of maybe a different way of, of looking at it or a different way of understanding it. Um, yeah. And you know, if that's all it does. Good. Awesome. Absolutely. Well, thank you again for taking time for, to come on our, our podcast, to talk to Kevin and I, to answer these questions. Yeah. Well, I'm going to come when I get the next season, I'll have you guys on my podcast and ask you the hard questions. <laughs> oh, that'll work. That'll work. You're going to hear a lot of past from us. Past. Can I phone a friend? I'll uh, call Lee and let Lee answer it. Oh, dude, don't call me. Hey, hey, by that by that time, we may not uh, we we may be in agreement. So who knows? (laughs) Who knows? (laughs) Thank you for joining us in this episode of Grace Saves All. You can help spread the word by sharing this podcast with others and by giving it a rating on iTunes. If you want to find out more about David. Or if you'd like to leave him a message, go to his website, davidartman.net. In the meantime, let's work together to help a hurting world know about the greatest news ever announced.